turn in your Bibles to Mark. And chapter 8 will be in verses 27 through 38. Mark 8, 27 through 38. Go ahead and follow and I'll read through it. Jesus, beginning in verse 27, Jesus went out with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. Do you, but you, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And Jesus strictly ordered and warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This right here is, we're about halfway through the book, the Gospel of Mark. And I would say this right here is good for us, as those of us that would raise our hands and say, hey, we're disciples of Christ. We've gone all in for Jesus. <clears throat> there's three questions, I think, in this section that I just read, and there's a lot to unpack. In fact, we could do, and maybe we will, come back and do just three sermons on each one of these questions. And so I'll race through, and I suspect that at the end you'll feel like I left quite a bit out. But I really just want us to turn into these three questions. And because they're important questions for us who would claim to be followers of Christ that we've got to ask and we've got to answer. And if we're followers, there's a certain way they've got to be answered. Uh, if they're not answered that way, then we're in fact not followers, right? So the three questions there, if you're looking on the back of your bulletin, you can see them. One, who do you say that he is? Two, are you standing in the way? And three, will you take up your cross? All right, so let's start with the first one. Who do you say that he is? So the disciples have been struggling to trust and understand who Jesus is. Right? You compare that as we've gone through Mark. Compare that to the Syrophoenician woman, the demoniac, right? The guy that had all the demons. Uh, compare that to the deaf and mute Gentile, Okay? And compare what they thought about who Jesus was versus where the disciples were, right? The disciples seemed confused up to this point. Uh, these others, those considered outsiders, the ones I just mentioned, right? They seemed to get it a little bit more. But the disciples, as we march through Mark, up, to the, up through these eight chapters, as we march through, the disciples are sometimes lumped in with the Pharisees. That's interesting, right? Up to this point in the gospel, in fact, Mark uh, is, who's the one writing the gospel, so this is after the fact, so I'm, I'm identifying something here. The only one, there's three, three places, three people, you could say, uh, not people, there's three <laughs> points, okay, that we see uh, Mark giving testimony 
and bearing witness very specifically to the identity of Jesus. Okay? And that's Mark himself. So, so far, it's only come from three areas. Mark himself, who's the author after the fact. Okay? So he's given testimony to the identity of Jesus as he writes the gospel. It makes sense. But it's after the fact here. And then you have God the Father at the baptism. Okay? There's we're reading through Mark. We see he gives identity or he gives affirmation to the identity of Jesus, right? And then what's the other ones? That's why I had to correct myself. It's not a person. The demons, right? The demons, uh, they confess the identity of Jesus Christ. Other than that, we don't have anybody specifically telling us about the identity of Jesus Christ, okay? And so we're halfway through the gospel, and now as we enter into chapter 8 here, Verse 27, here we see Jesus is walking along the road with his disciples, as it says there, and he puts this crucial question to them, a question about his identity, all right? And he asks, who do people say that he is? Who do people say that he is? And I think it's important, if you didn't already catch it, I'll repeat it, uh, notice when he asked this. When in his ministry, in his time with his disciples, when does he ask this? Right? Before, not after his resurrection, death, right? Not after his death, we'll go in order. Not after his death, resurrection, not after that, but before is when he asks this question, right? So here he is in the middle of his journey with these disciples. And he raises this question to them about his identity. Jesus wants to know where people are placing their faith. He wants to know what his disciples think about that. Right Now there will be proof to his identity after his resurrection when many of their questions will be answered. But what about right now? Okay, it's easy for us as we're reading to kind of jump ahead because many of us know the end of the story. We know the disciples' faith. We see their faith, right? But right now, that's not what we've seen so far. So it's important for us to slow down and and think contextually here. What's going on right here in chapter 8, verse 27? What's going on? And so while there will be proof uh, to Jesus' identity for these guys after the resurrection, here Jesus is putting them... Uh, putting an important question in front of them regarding their faith. Uh, To quote one scholar, he says, For the disciples at this point in the gospel, faith will necessitate a choice. This is really important. You think of the nature of the question. Okay, who do what people say that I am? So this scholar here, he's saying, hey, at this point in the gospel, what the disciples are seeing is that faith necessitates a choice contrary to the prevailing consensus of crowds and religious leaders. Right? He says faith means actively following Jesus on the way. See, they're not to the end of their journey yet. Okay, So faith means actively following Jesus on the way, not demanding signs like we talked about last week, or turning to one's own way, but following Jesus on the way, right? Against the prevailing view of the culture at that time, okay? So that's what we're seeing. So what is, we see it there, because the disciples answer the question, don't they? Uh, We see it there in verse uh, 28. The disciples there are walking with Jesus, and they answer Here's what the prevailing consensus of the crowd is. Jesus, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others say that you are one of the prophets. So this is the prevailing consensus of the crowd. The popular opinion. It's intriguing, isn't it? In fact, I initially, when I first started looking at this, going into these and saying, well, that's interesting, and it is, to look at why did they think John the Baptist? Why did they think... Elijah, what did they mean by one of the prophets, right? The popular opinion, as intriguing as it is, though, as we could go into that, and it would be worth our time, we're not going to, as intriguing as it is, it was wrong, 
That's the point. They were wrong, right? Now, you and I, we look at that, and I think, I know I have, I've sped right past it. I've just sped right past that, and I, and I think part of the reason, or at least even if we reflect now, uh, you know, we would like to be compared to one of these guys. Well, that's cool, we might think, as we're reading along. They thought he was one of these guys. You know, those guys are pretty good. God used those guys. That's pretty neat that they thought that. You know, we might think they were pretty close, Right? And so we're reading there, and we're maybe thinking some of those things. Boy, it would be a great honor, right? Wouldn't you like to be compared to Elijah? Certainly John the Baptist, boy, we talked about him. Right? Even Jesus had great things to say about John. So, wow, what a great honor it is that the people and the prevailing consensus of the time would sort of honor Jesus by thinking of him that he's one of these three guys. Well, hogwash, baloney, okay? That's not an honor. It's not an honor when you're the God-man. Amen? And he was the God-man, and it wasn't an honor. It was an insult. An insult. An insult because it denies his true identity. An identity much more significant than any of these opinions. Right? None of these guys were there before the world began. No. But Jesus was. Right? Right? None of them, as we just sang earlier, none of them is Lord the Almighty, the King of creation. Right? None of them, as we just sang, that none of them could provide health and salvation. Right? All these options were uh, just mere men. Mere men. And we can make a lot out of mere men, can't we? But men always let us down. Jesus, on the other hand, is the God-man that provides the healing and salvation that we sing about, that we confess, that we come here and gather around and, and praise his name about. These guys that are mentioned here, the prevailing consensus of the time, right, they may have lived life that pointed to Jesus, but they were not Jesus. What is the popular opinion and consensus of the crowds today? That's a good question for us to answer and ask ourselves, right? Some say today, even still, even now, that he was a great teacher, a man with great morals, right? You've heard that. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis. He's famous. Uh, he's famous for giving uh, us three options as to the identity of Jesus. Many of you have heard this before. Uh, Lord, liar, lunatic. Have you heard that? Nod your head if you've heard this before. C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, and I think we have it up there, and I'll read it for us so you can follow along. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a, li a lunatic nor a liar. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it, it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. The popular opinion, the prevailing consensus of the crowd today church is that he is not God in fact many say there is no God the popular opinion 
right, did not believe then and does not believe now, even after the resurrection, that Jesus is God. Okay, go to the academy. Many of you have. Go to the academy and they will laugh at you. Sadly, even the Christian academy is shy about Jesus' identity. They distort him and they often are apologetic, embarrassed even, of what the Bible teaches. Hoping, I think, perhaps why they're embarrassed is that they are hoping to gain some credibility, status maybe, with the secular academic. Right? If they do believe the Bible in some of our Christian academies, for those that do personally believe the Bible, they often do not want their colleagues to know it. Right? The popular opinion of the academy, those educating our citizenry, the future leaders, entrepreneurs, think of it, inventors, principals, future teachers, mothers, fathers, future legal experts, future medical experts, right? All being trained in the academy. And they are being trained by the popular opinion of the academy, which denies the identity of Jesus Christ. Do you think that influences a culture? The forces setting up our values, think of it, the forces setting up our values and heavily influencing our systems do not believe all things were created through Jesus Christ. And this matters more than anything, right? It is the greatest deception, right? This popular opinion, right? It's a great deception, right? Pop culture, here they are all with one voice, and the very air they breathe does not cause them pause in their denial of the identity of Jesus Christ. They keep marching forward with this message, and it takes all kinds of different forms and shapes and sizes. Right, The overwhelming messaging of our culture is coming from those who adamantly deny, think of it, the very one that created them. And it's not just the academy, it's our entertainment industry, sports, music, movies, deny, deny, deny. Our media, our news outlets, and don't tell me that you found a news outlet that just gives you the truth. Hogwash, right? There's no such thing. And if you believe that, boy, you're in danger, right? The only way you can tell me that is if you're just reading your Bible, right? The fact is we're not, and we do need to come to a place in our discipleship of being able to read our Bible and discern what we're hearing so we can know the truth. How foolish we would be if we stood here this morning and said the popular opinion that's coming from all these places, this prevailing consensus of the crowd about our Lord and His teaching, how foolish we would be if we said, we don't listen to it, we ignore it, or it won't influence us, right? Look, you've heard it, denial is not just a river in Egypt, right? we got to come to grips with the fact we can't ignore the popular opinion, okay? You can't ignore it. All right? It's deafening. That's like saying if the alarm system, which I actually don't think we have a fire alarm system in here. We'll look into that. All right? But uh, that's like saying the, if the alarm system just started going off here, it would be like, oh, I, it doesn't bother me. I don't hear it. What are you talking about? Yeah, it would. It would be screeching in your ears. We couldn't even hear each other talk. If it was a good one, right? And so we got to recognize right now that the popular opinion, that we can't ignore it. It is deafening, right? And I would say this, if you say you're ignoring it, if you say they're not influencing, man, you are being swept up in it, right? Right? Because it is screaming in our ears. It, and what is it? 
It's a constant denial of Jesus. It's a constant denial of his word and his life-giving direction for how he has designed us to live, how we were designed to live in response to the gospel. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say? That's what he asked his disciples. And I was just thinking, what would our response be to him today? Right? Well, Jesus, it's Gay Pride Month here in the United States. And to be honest, Jesus, people aren't really thinking very much about you and your identity. They are instead obsessed with their sexual identity. I know it doesn't make much sense, Lord, defining our identity by a desire, right? Desires come and go, and we are more than our desire, praise God. But Jesus, we are in a culture that is at war with your design and insists that we define our identity by sexual desires. They're really not paying too much attention about Jesus' identity at all. In fact, as a sign of their arrogance and rejection, they have co-opted, that is, the popular and prevailing view of our time, as a sign of their arrogance and rejection of Jesus, they have co-opted, right, or are desecrating your sacred symbol, the rainbow, and pridefully waving it to encourage, really, we could say, demand that the culture accept their popular opinion. And we see it all over. They want us to deny your identity, Jesus, and embrace a fictitious identity rooted and defined by one's sexual desires. And sadly, Christian publishing houses legitimize this. Evidence that it has is even in 2016, Zondervan published two views on homosexuality and it's very problematic. In fact, D.A. Carson spoke about this, and he spoke about the dangers of it. He said there in this two views on homosexuality and published by Zondervan, he said the book implies, or excuse me, the book bills these two views as affirming and non-affirming, and two authors support each side. Both sides, we are told, argue from Scripture. If the affirming side was once viewed as a stance that could not be held by confessional evangelicals, this book declares that it can now be. You see how it's misleading. He goes on to talk about it. And essentially, these publishing houses, another one, Erdman's or Eerdman's, I don't even know how to say it, but it's a popular one. I have a lot of books on my shelf by Eerdman's Publishing House, right? And they put out this, this month books to read for Pride Month, all right? And here's some of the books that they say we can read for Pride Month. The Family of Origin, A Family of Choice. And it goes on. You can look at it yourself if you want to get online. We Were Spiritual Refugees, A Story to Help You Believe in Church. And it's ministering these are books trying to make room and be inclusive to the LGBTQ community. And they go on. I had a few others here. I encourage you to check it out, actually, because I think it's important for us to know what's out there. And one of the points here in referencing these is that, you know, sometimes we, we can dismiss this. We're not aware of how loud and influential our culture is in denying the identity of Jesus and his teachings. And as we embrace the teachings of the popular pop culture, we drift away from the identity of Jesus. And you see it happening again and again and again. And it's important for us to see that even the Christian publishing companies, maybe that Christian bookstore you go to, church, we need to be on guard. We need to be careful because even Christian publishing companies legitimize what God condemns. Who do people say that he is? It's an important question because there are popular opinions out there that you hear 
And Jesus wants us to be honest about what we're hearing, right? He wants us to be able to be honest about what we're hearing and what others are saying. To be honest about how and what our culture is trying to get us to think and believe. And when I say honest, I mean he wants us and we need to recognize what our culture is trying to get us to think and believe. Right? Because what it puts in front of us, and this is really important for everyone in here, regardless of your age, right? Especially the younger ones, even as they're developing here in terms of trying to assess what does our culture think? What does the church think? What does Jesus want me to believe? Right? What are his teaching? And how different really is that from the culture? And so it's really, really important, I think, that, that Jesus, in asking that question of his disciples, is wanting them to recognize that in the face of culture, right, and the popular opinion of the day, saying, well, you disciples then, that's what they think I am, that's who they, you have a choice to make, right? And he's putting it very clearly in front of them that they have a faith choice to make. Are you going to, are you willing to choose? And we have to ask ourselves that right now and ongoing. And so I put it to, to maybe youth or young people or those in their 20s, but all of us have to constantly put this question in front of us in terms of our faith. We're to walk in faith and repentance every day. And we've got to put this question in front of us in terms of are you going to, are we as a church going to choose contrary to popular opinion? You've got to recognize that personally and individually that you've got a choice to make. Because Jesus is asking you a second question. The same second question that he asked his disciples. Seen there in verse 29. But you. But you. Right? And he doesn't want you thinking about anybody else right now when he's asking that question. Right? He wants you to stop thinking about Erdman's publishing house and Zondervan. Forget about them. He wants you to think about you. Who do you? Who do you? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now remember, the disciples have asked themselves this question. Remember when they were on the boat in chapter 4? They're like, they're wondering. They're not quite getting it. They're like, who is this guy? Even the wind and the seas. Wow. Obey him. Who is this guy? This is the most, y'all, this is the most important question people can answer for, that you, that we can answer for ourselves. It's the most important question, right? The most important question, and this is helpful because we can take this after we answer it and we deal with it, we can take this question with us in the month of June, okay, and ask others and have dialogue and begin to have conversation because, and let others know, let ourselves know, but then let others know that the most important question is this question, who do I say that Jesus is? It's not what are my sexual desires. That's not the first question. It's not the most important question. The first and most important question is who do I say that Jesus is? And what is my conclusion going to be? And we move on from there. Right, the most important question. The answer to this question determines whether you're going to be an insider or an outsider in the kingdom of God. Right? Now this has been confusing for the religious establishment thus far in Mark because they thought of themselves as what? Insiders. Right? But as we have seen very clearly, they're on the outside. But where are the disciples going to be? Where are they going to land? Well, we know, but up to this point, we don't really. I mean, it's really not clear. If we just read this up to this point, these first eight chapters, it's not really clear. Here they have been hand-selected by Jesus even, but they have been guilty of missing it, guilty of not getting it, of not understanding, even of not having faith even. The disciples... Maybe Jesus is halfway through it. Maybe he's six months into his ministry. Maybe he's a year and a half. Maybe he's halfway through his ministry at this point with the disciples. And he's asking them a question. 
who do you say that I am? And it's a call for us, each of us, need to be asked. We're asked this question, right? And it's a call for us to make a faith. It's a, it's a response of faith. A faith decision, right, is required of us in answering this question, right? And, and part of that question in him asking, who do you say, like he's been with them for a while, for a few months, here we go, we're walking down this road, and I'm going to put a question to you about what do the popular opinions say, because we've been around all these people, and they're saying a lot of stuff about who I am, but now I'm going to ask you, who do you say that I am, and once you decide to answer that, you're going to take a step of faith into answering that, right, as we see that they do, because they confess his identity as the Messiah here in a second, but he's saying, so... All right, in confessing that, right, you're going to move along now. You're going to move along with me. Here we are walking with Christ. Like to confess that would be to move forward in following him. It's central. It calls for us to make a faith decision. And he's calling them in that, in that question to say, are you then, so we've made it this far, a year and a half into our ministry, are you going to continue to follow me? Like, that's it. Are you going to, like, here's what everybody's saying. You've just confessed that to me. It's, it's not who I am. It doesn't represent me. Who are you going to go with? That's what he's asking his disciples. Church, I think that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Like, who are we going to go with? Right? We've been going along the road this far. We're going to keep going. Keep following. We're going to keep following. And that question is central to the gospel. Once we realize what Jesus is asking us, sometimes I think Christians are like, wait, wait, wait. I didn't get it. Right? And maybe they weren't, maybe they aren't Christian, but they just thought they were, and they bow out, they back out. The gospel requires faith. Calls us to make a choice. Peter answers this question, as we just said, he, and we can assume Peter is speaking for all the disciples. There in 29, at the end there, he, he says, you are the Messiah. Uh, and Jesus strictly warns them not to tell anyone. Uh, now we know, and this is another point that could be talked about and would be rich to talk about it, and we will and have in some uh, already in some ways, and, and, but not today, but just talking about the Jews and, and the promised Messiah and what was their expectation. Certainly, this was an expectation, the expectation that one day, this is the promise that we see uh, sprinkled throughout the New Testament, this promise of a, a Messiah that would come, a greater David that would come and set the captives free, right, and, and rescue them. And so the Jews were looking forward to, to a Messiah, and, and we see there... <clears throat> How this even influenced Peter's response next. Uh, Jesus goes on to describe in verse 31 the type of Messiah he will be. But we see there in this next section that Peter stands in the way. Uh, verse 31, after Peter confessed that he's the Messiah. And Jesus began to teach them very specifically about his, his mission as the Messiah, and here's what he says. So he's confessed as the Messiah, and then he goes on to teach them, here's going to be my mission as the Messiah. And so the disciples are, are liking the idea of Messiah, and now they're listening to what the Messiah's mission's going to be. Verse 31, then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? Peter was bold, wasn't he? He began to rebuke him, but turning around and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns. You're thinking about human concerns. The question I want to put before us as we go through this chunk here is that are you standing in the way? Peter was standing in the way. Are you standing in the way? Peter knows he's the Messiah, but he quickly finds himself in opposition. You know, there are three passion predictions in Mark. This is the first one right here in verse 31. 
right? This was not the Messiah that people expected. Again, the disciples lacked understanding, namely Peter, right? I think he represents them in this setting. Jesus is talking to all of them. Peter kind of speaking as the representative, right? And they found themselves at a crossroads, a turning point. You ever find yourselves at a turning point in your walk of faith where, where actually it's just like this. It's just like this passage, actually, where you're being, a, a decision uh, about your faith is being put in front of you. And are you going to go with the Lord? Are you going to go with Jesus and do, do things his way? Or are you going to go and, and do things your way? And that's really uh, what he's putting in front of them. Uh, it should not be hard for us to consider why Peter resisted, at least here initially, right? The concept of a suffering Messiah was not recognizable. And I think even today, like Peter, we are drawn to the type of hero Jesus wasn't, okay? Today, let me say it again, we are drawn to the type of hero Jesus wasn't, right? I think it's how I treated my brother growing up a little bit, all right? I would go uh, to him when I got myself in a pickle, all right? An emergency pickle, right? And I'd look to him to bail me out. He was eight years older and he was good at it, right? I remember him telling me, though, often he would say to me, which I thought, you know, he's probably in his early 20s when he said this to me, but he said, poor planning on my part doesn't constitute an emergency on his part. Uh, but praise God, he would still go ahead and pity me, have mercy, bail me out. Now Jesus, of course, has lots of this kind of mercy. But if this is all he becomes to us, a friend to give us a handout or a hand up, however you want to say it, if all he becomes to us is, is, is a friend that that does things for us in this life only, folks, we're missing it. Because it's so much more. He's so much more. So much more. And while you can sympathize with Peter, right? Because you're like, oh, the Messiah that's going to come and, you know, crush some of this, this oppression that we're under here within Rome and all this other stuff and fix things. And there's lots of injustices going on. And I've seen this Jesus work here on earth and how he's healing people. Man, this is going to be great. We've never had a king like this before. And he's just going to keep healing everybody. And we're just going to do ministry for a long, 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 long time. And then he learns like he's about to die. Right, And so you can sympathize with that, with that desire to want things in this life that are broken to be fixed right now and then to be face to face with somebody that can fix the things that are broken and he can fix them right now. Y'all, that, that's intense. And that's what it was like. And so you can understand. But, but what Jesus and the Word is sharing with us here, God is telling us here, the Holy Spirit, I believe, is, is telling us here this morning is, man, Jesus is so much more than fixing things in this life that are broken. In fact, we have such greater need than to fix the things in my life here in this earth right now, whether it's financial or otherwise or sickness. I have way bigger needs, spiritual need, than getting those things fixed, right? And Jesus understands that, of course, and that was his mission. And that's why he needed to suffer and die. And that's why we needed a suffering Messiah. Right? Jesus did not come to set up a military as nice as that would have been. The disciples were not going to be like uh, David's mighty men. Right? That'd be fun. Right? With Jesus leading you there. Right? Against all the bad guys. But instead, verse 31 Instead of putting people on a cross, right, Jesus is going to allow himself to be put on a cross. Jesus' mission that included suffering many things, being rejected and killed, this was hard to accept. It didn't seem fair, or possible, or right. And like Peter, you know, I think we want to resist this kind of Messiah. You know why? If we understand what it means 
Say, I'm going to follow this Messiah. Well, what does it mean if the Messiah you're following is a suffering Messiah? Right? You resist. Peter resisted not just because he, he, he was concerned for Jesus' health. He resists because if he's going to follow a suffering Messiah, like Peter resisted for his own health, <laughs> physical health. Why? Well, because he was going to suffer too then. That's what that meant. Jesus doesn't fit the messianic stereotype. Consider the way we think about life, ministry, even today in the church, pastors, discipleship. We want a hero that is strong and good looking. I mean, we're that shallow, actually. We're that shallow, right? Look at our pictures of Jesus. Even Jesus, so we could, we could keep critiquing the church here and how we tend to distort uh, ministry and his ministry and prioritize the wrong things, but just look at how, we, how the church has represented Jesus, right? We're all, all about, oh, I can't be, believe Peter stood in the way, but just look at the pictures we've painted, <laughs> right? I mean, just right there, literally, the pictures of Jesus. Last Sunday after prayer, I was talking with Shane, and it was the first time I, Pastor Shane, and it was the first time I had, had heard it. But as we were speaking of paintings and pictures of Jesus, Shane, Pastor Shane mentioned that, that, you know, in some of those he looks like a shampoo model. <laughs> I hadn't heard that one. I, that's what I did. I laughed. It's true because it's true. You're like, oh, yeah, I can see that, right? What's going on, you know? But what you don't know is that Jesus was bald. Uh, thank you, yes, yeah, no, seriously, right, seriously though, look what we've done to him, right, we put cool hair on him, put cool clothes, nice body, blue eyes, we make him into the, hear this, we make him into the cool kid, right, so the cool kids in school like him, right, we make him into the tough guy, this is, this is, and now we're getting into critiquing the ministry of the church and discipleship, all right? Hope we hear it. All right, we make Jesus into the tough guy so the tough guys will like him, right? We make him into the wise businessman, uh, right, so they'll want to emulate him. And it's true that he's beautiful and he's tough and he's wise, right? But he's not beautiful like we measure. He's not tough like we measure and he's not, he's not wise like we measure. And, and the other thing about this is this sort of tactic in ministry in the church, uh, it won't withstand the popular opinion of the day, right? That is to, to dress Jesus up to the culture. He's more appealing to the culture. And put different clothes on them, make them maybe adopt some of the cultural values a little bit, change our Bibles slightly. Uh, right? This, this tactic won't withstand popular opinion of the day. Right? Right. He, he's not cool <laughs> like our culture says is cool. Right? And what's interesting, we, why we try to do that, and we see that, I think, actually in churches, where, you know, they try to start putting on Jesus what culture says is cool, what culture says is, is, is uh, you know, the popular opinion of the day. They try to put that on Jesus. And like I said, even just, it causes us to distort the word of God, distort the teaching of Christ. We have a faith choice to make. We have a faith choice to make. Are you going to choose Jesus or the popular opinion of the day? Right? Are you going to go contrary to the crowd? You go contrary to the crowd? Go contrary to the crowd. And you are not considered cool. Okay? I want us to think about that. It's not acceptable 
It's not acceptable to go contrary to the crowd. It will cause you problems, church. Who will you say that he is? If we confess he is the Messiah, we certainly don't want to be caught like Peter standing in the way of his mission. In that moment, you read there, Peter was working for the devil when he prioritized human concerns over God's concerns. Verse 33, what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. There in that moment, Peter's standing in the way of Jesus' mission. Do you know what it is to be consumed with human concerns and not God's? You bet we do, don't we? Jesus has been pressing on us throughout Mark. I think the Holy Spirit has been putting the squeeze on us if we've been listening. If we have ears to hear this morning in the past however many weeks, right? In fact, just last week, the question was raised, are we fixated on the business of this world or the business of heaven? Right? The business of this world can feel like the most important thing, can it? I mean, you agree? It can. And when that is the case, when that is where our heart's at, right, we too will be caught prioritizing human concerns, which places us in opposition to God. Who do you say that he is? Are you standing in the way? And the last question Will you take up the cross? Will you take up your cross? Verse 34 is very important. Very important part of this section just seen right there in verse 34. It says, look there with me. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me. And this I think is an important distinction. And you can circle these words in this in this in verse 34. All right? Crowd and anyone. Crowd and anyone. Jesus is here's the point. Crowd and anyone. Jesus is not just talking to the 12 disciples. You see that? <laughs> he he's not just talking to those that want to be church leaders or those that want to be missionaries, right? He's talking to everyone who would say, I want to follow you, Jesus, right? So that's just an important point there in verse 34. So what he says next is for everybody. Agree? Do we agree? Okay, all right. So we have to ask this question, will you take up your cross? We have to ask this question because one reason we don't want a suffering servant Messiah is because that means we have to suffer. That's basic. A servant is not greater than his master. If they hated Jesus, they'll hate us. This is what we've been talking about along the way, disciple under pressure. You could say disciples under the cross, under a cross that we pick up and say, we're going to march forward with. So Jesus was clear that anyone who wants to follow him is making a life decision that puts them in opposition to the prevailing opinions and systems and beliefs of the crowd. You believe that? Did you hear that? Like, like that's really important. Let me say it again. Jesus was clear, and I think very clear in this section, that anyone who wants to follow him is making a life decision that puts them in opposition to the prevailing opinions, systems, beliefs of the crowd. And he's saying, let him deny himself, right? What is that? What is that? Ask yourself that question. What does it mean for me to deny myself, right? That means you're denying the urge to fit in. Deny the urge to be comfortable. Deny the urge to want to make this place a nice, safe, comfortable home. It means that. Deny the urge to want to preserve this place and instead lose your life for Jesus and his gospel. 
Is your plan, goals, dreams, your vision for your life, is it the way of the cross? This is, this is convicting stuff, right? Is your plan, is what you spend your time thinking about and consumes you as you think about your future and you think about your finances and you think about your career path, are you consumed as a follower of Christ or a follower of this world? As you think about your goals, the dreams, and the vision for your life, are you thinking about the way of the cross? Are you thinking about suffering and humiliation? Are you grabbing hold of preserving yourself in this life? And have you adopted the prevailing opinions and ideas and goals and visions and systems of this world? And are you just set on making this place home? What does it say about what consumes your thoughts and what consumes your pocketbook and what consumes your planning? What would we know if you were to tell us about that? What would we learn about who you're following? Right? Has the center of gravity in coming to Jesus, has the center of gravity shifted off of self and onto Jesus? Even Peter, I'm sure he thought he was looking out for Jesus when he rebuked Jesus for saying, for Jesus saying that he would be a Messiah that suffered, right? This was a denial of the way of the cross. Peter was denying the way of the cross, you see. And to that, Jesus said to him, you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. When we transfer, church, our allegiance to Christ, we are also transferring our concerns from self to the way and will of God. Has that happened? So the imagery here, right, in this passage, as we move to close, the imagery here, and here's a real popular word, and I mean it when I say I didn't accidentally say it, okay? But the imagery here is of the Christian putting down self-care and exchanging it for a cross. Yep. Let me say it again, right? The imagery here is of the Christian putting down self-care and exchanging it for a cross. Right? A Christian picks up a cross and begins marching. That's the imagery. It's a death march. Right? A Christian picks up their cross and begins marching for Jesus to their death. Right? Someone picking up a cross in that time period was condemned to die. It's not just about being known here as someone who counted the cost, right? It's not, uh, what I mean, what I, where I'm going with that, it's not, we're reading here in this final section, it's not just an invitation for those that want to go to another level of following Christ, right? We said verse 34 is for all of us. It's a description of a Christian. So when we're saying, I'm a Christian, we're saying, I've got a cross on my back and I'm willing to, I'm marching the death march. I'm, I'm going to go contrary to the popular opinion of the day, no matter what it costs me in my career field, my job, my life, right? Show that picture up there, Josh. Right? As we look at this, it's not just being known here as someone who counted the cost. It's an invitation to be Christian, right? Right, because Christians count the cost. This picture here shows a large gathering of workers at a shipyard in Hamburg, Germany in 1936 for the launching of a Navy training ship. Almost everyone in the image has their has raised their arm in the Nazi salute with the most obvious exception of a man toward the back of the crowd who grimly stands with his arms crossed over his chest. Someone that I follow on Twitter has this on their, their Twitter feed 
and I see it all the time when I go to look at stuff that they're posting, and, and, and they have a tagline over the picture that says, when the time comes, be this guy, and they've got the guy that's not saluting, just standing there like that, and they circled him, when the time comes, be this guy. You can bring the lights back up. If we see there in the rest of the passage, Jesus looks at you upon his return, right? That's where it's going. He's looking at us upon his return. And he's going to ask, did you live to gain the world or did you live to lose your life? While you lived... Were you more concerned with man's affirmation? Right? Was it the stressors and pressures and the desires of this world that guided and dictated the direction of your life? Right? When, when everybody took the sign of promise and said it was a sign of pride, how did you respond? Does the pride of our culture cause you to shrink back in embarrassment of Jesus and his word? Is your life tilted towards being received and accepted by this adulterous and sinful generation? As it says there in our text, ashamed of Jesus and his teaching? These are good questions for us to ask ourselves, aren't they? They're hard. And it's sort of a solemn note to end on. It's also healthy in terms of us exercising and desiring to, as a church, exercise all right, the spiritual discipline of coming under the Word and submitting ourselves to it so that by the power and grace of God, He might transform us. So that we can be the man in the picture that doesn't go with the crowd. Not because we're angry at the, at the crowd. But because we pity them. Right? Because, because we're concerned about, because we recognize that Jesus is our hope and our only hope. And we're looking at the crowd and we've got a message of hope a message of the gospel that we want to get out and we're willing to speak it because it's what right it's it, you could be the guy in the crowd and, and and never put yourself in that setting to where why you're not doing what everybody else is doing is known but we want it to be known right i want it to be known why you won't see the the rainbow flag flying at my house right so that takes conversations reaching out with the love of the gospel, right? And the teaching of his word and the purpose of his design for our life. So let's, let's ask and answer some of these questions, not just today, not just this week, but regularly. Put this challenge and this word before us that Jesus put to his disciples. Will you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word that you just, it's, it's so, it's active and powerful and it penetrates our hearts. And we need to be challenged in these areas. We, we need help to discern these areas because there, there are things that, that are happening all around us even right now that, are, that would cause us, if we listen to them, to to at best actually distort your identity and, and at, at some point even completely leave you behind. And so God, we, we submit ourselves to you and we want to say help us, protect us, your church, so that we won't be, that we won't be pushed off track of following you, that we would be able to stay the course. And we recognize that, that our own intelligence won't have us staying the course. That we recognize our, our own uh, strength won't, and won't help us stay the course. We need, uh, we need your strength and we need your power. And we need the, the hope of your truth and, and your gospel guiding and shepherding us again and again in an ongoing basis. Shepherding us to the light 
But we confess that, that your word is a light unto our path. So help us, Lord. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.